0: Blood Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Doctor Simon, and this is the third show I've done this week, which is unusual. But it's also unusual to uh, be uh, sequestered in my home, in which this is the highlight of my day. So, uh, for whatever its value it is for the listener, it's of great value. <laughs> for me, myself, and I. Um, The last show I did, I think it was yesterday at 3 o'clock, was a discussion of an article that was an op-ed piece in last Sunday's New York Times entitled Don't Ignore Clinical Mental Illness, written by, excellently written by, intelligently written by Andrew Solomon, who is a professor of medical psychology at Columbia University Medical Center, and the author of some very successful books, among them the Noonday Nieman, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and a National Mm -hmm. Book Award winner. And I went through most of the uh, article discussing and deconstructing and hoping to make clear uh, my strenuous objection to calling people in various states of unhappiness mentally ill. And once again, I restate my argument. Um, A behavior that is meaningful, purposeful, and most of the behaviors that are judged to be mental illnesses involve certain emotions, unhappiness, uh, uh, a problem an individual has in achieving goals, or or making the same mistakes over and over again of uh, being involved in in self-destructive activities involving drugs or crime uh, uh, involved in relationships that don't go anywhere all kinds of very human things very often without the individual's ability to understand why these things keep going over happening over and over again and more and more, any kind of human unhappiness, any kind of thinking that seems illogical uh, to, to the general society, uh, any kind of expression of emotion can now be labeled as a mental illness. Um, and when I came into the field, as I say so many times before, there was about 25 mental illnesses, and they were mostly uh, conceptualized Through psychoanalytic I thinking that they were really the products of unhealthy thinking that came from childhood misinterpretations uh, uh, the setting up of a life of relationships that were based on uh, uh, modes of, 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 of dealing with people that were doomed to failure and yet somehow the individual could not understand or see or have insight into their own role in replicating uh, a, a, a life that they lived in as a child uh, and finding a way out of it into another kind of, a, of existence um, and i discussed all of this and i will discuss it again today what was interesting though is that the two emotions uh, the two emotional configurations or one an emotion and a kind of a group of emotions, uh, anxiety and depression were really the um, focus of the article, uh, the, the, the clinical mental illnesses that the um, author focused upon, which were either created by or exacerbated, made worse by the pandemic. Right? And I went through and I, try to deconstruct as best I can, and I'm not going to repeat the show, but I would ask the listener who's coming to this for the first time to listen to the first show, yesterday's show, which was called Reactions to the Pandemic and the Myth of of Mental Illness, Uh, and and, um, it, it has the same title today with part two added. I didn't discuss... Anxiety and I didn't discuss um, depression. And I wanted to discuss them today in some uh, greater detail, again to demonstrate not that they're not problems, but they're not medical problems. And again, if somebody can be shown that somebody's anxiety or depression, uh, either that person's or all, are merely the result of an unhappy brain problem, a chemical imbalance, or something else of the nature, then the argument is over, I have nothing to say, and I was in the wrong profession, working with and trying to help people deal with what I considered psychological and social difficulties of their own making, but with with which, especially in childhood, they had a lot of help creating. Right. Now, I'm not looking to blame anybody here. I'm looking to understand, to explain, to describe, explain, and and, and bring some understanding uh, to the to the issues that I worked with for 50 years. So, I'm going to expand that. There are a couple of other uh, ideas I want to add to just the problems related to anxiety and what we call depression. Right. And that will be guilt, shame, and humiliation. Now, I need some backdrop here. I need some backstory. I've done this on many, many shows. uh, But let's do it again. I believe that when I approach another human being or look at myself, we all live according to some story. That is, a story that starts often with I, if I ask somebody to tell me about their life or why they have come to me in my office or I try to get a student to talk, it's I or we, the collective we. And the story has a history, it contains a history of events. Some events that seem to be uh, created happiness and others that created great distress and misery. And if you look at the content of the story, it's mostly about the history, but I've learned over the years to look at how the story is constructed. What's the logic of the story? At what point in the person's life did so many of these elements of the story get shaped? Now, what's contained in the story, and I can't talk about all of them. I'm going to do a sweep of this. Uh, Anybody who wants to know more, there's much literature on this. Uh, But as I try to do now, try to get people to read my book. Because there, while I don't have an exhaustive set of explanations, I have a clearer understanding that's laid out across 200 pages of what it is that causes so much unhappiness when people live by certain kinds of stories. That is, what were the events that may have been pivotal in the story, and then the structure and content of the story. Every story has at its core a teller, a person who refers to themselves as I. They are the doer, They are the person who does the things in the story. Every story contains a historical events, and those events can be looked at from an economic point of view, a political point of view, or just purely history. Every story has truth in it. That is, the truth of the teller. Facts. Now, in science... When a scientist produces a study and says, this is a fact, for example, this particular drug will cure the, the uh, coronavirus, people will look up and if he has the right credentials, they will say, now let's go to the laboratory and see if his fact can be replicated and it becomes my fact. Now, sometimes when somebody tells us something, we don't have any other evidence about what the facts are and we accept them and in childhood we can learn all kinds of facts from parents from teachers from religious figures from the media that turn out not to be really good facts that is you have to take them on faith and taking stuff on faith about what's the truth of the world is necessary none of us can go look at everything for ourselves right I had to trust my parents about certain facts, and it turns out much of what they told me became my truth, and others became, especially when I was an adolescent and older, bullshit. Right? Anybody listening to this haven't gone through the same experience? Uh, much of what I learned in school, I took a that the, from the movies and from what I learned in school, that the American West was settled by brave settlers who fought savages who had no right to be there, except they had been there for thousands of years. And they were not savages. They had a civilization different than our own. And by the time I became a young adult, much of what I learned in school was bullshit. I learned about studying psychology, the facts of mental illness, And now I see that was bullshit. And I use the word bullshit in a generic sense, a good word, bullshit, in many ways. It's not the truth, but it's held as fact. Now, I learned through trial and error that if I got hit by a car or if I got sick, if I ate the wrong food, uh, if I did many things, I would get sick. And that turned out to be also verifiable facts through experience, that I live by. Right? The other thing I learned, and we all learn, and that comprises our stories, in addition to uh, uh, facts, are morals. Some of our facts and some of our understandings are about things we judge to be good or bad, dangerous or safe. In other words, the judgments carry with them value. I used to smoke I didn't smoke that long because when I started to smoke it was seen as a perfectly safe thing and by the 1960s middle 60s when I stopped and I became a father I stopped smoking because I believed if I continued to smoke I would die much the same as my father died who smoked two packs of Lucky Strikes a day all of his throughout his childhood and his adulthood and died at a young age of, of, of heart disease. I took that as now as a fact. Okay. So facts aren't easy to come by, and our judgments may change across our lifetime. Big topic. I won't get into the size of the topic, but we need to judge things as good or bad. Or beautiful or ugly or safe or dangerous or in a variety of other dimensions we need facts and we need judgments about the facts we ourselves are a fact and we have to judge ourselves and we do and we are judged by others so one of the core of every story is a sense of self and an identity who am I I used to do it with my students. Who are you? I am. I would have them write on a piece of paper and write five, 10, 15 words that describe themselves, their identity. Right? So I am a male, I am an American, I am a father, I am a grandfather which is a very happy part of my identity and a very nerve-wracking one given what's going on in the world and what I think is coming in terms of global warming and and cultural and political uh, upheaval uh, and and a variety of other unhappy events that I am afraid will be facts. If not in my lifetime, then in my children's lifetime, Uh, if not fully in theirs, then certainly in my grandchildren. Okay? I'm an American. I'm a Jew. I'm not a practicing Jew, but I'm a Jewish culturally. My identity and the way I see the world was shaped by the cultural values of, of my religion. Okay? I think I am a fairly good person. Identity contains judgments about ourselves. And that's critical. Because over the years, I have felt in some ways I wasn't so good or wasn't bad, it goes back and forth. But essentially, I like myself enough as a human being to live a life, to like other people, very different from many of the people I work with whose core identity is filled with ideas such as I shouldn't have been born, I'm no good, I'm evil, I'm disgusting, I'm ugly, concepts that are central to how we live out our lives and the nature of the stories we live by that are so unhappy and produce nothing but misery and unhappiness. And it is the nature of that misery and unhappiness that can be addressed through a process such as psychotherapy, but gets reinforced once an individual is told, you're not ugly or sick or crazy uh, or, 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 or bad, you're just sick, you're damaged. And that becomes a, a kind of a metaphor for what the real feelings are. So now the individual has two kinds of difficulty to deal with one is that they're sick and may have an unknown incurable untraceable untreatable brain problem and that they're ugly and stupid and bad and shouldn't have been born part of our story is built around the emotions that result when we look at the facts of the world and when we ask questions about our own nature, our own identity. And I now want to talk about some of those emotions because they are also central to our understanding of ourselves and the people around us. If I see that something might be happening that can affect me, I need to know the facts. I need to know what I have to do to prepare. I have to know if I need help in dealing with what's coming. Okay? What's built into every human being is an emotion called anxiety. Okay? Anxiety occurs when there is what I call, what philosophers might call, a known unknown. That is, I know There's something going to happen, but I don't know yet what exactly it is. And as long as I don't know what it is, I can't behave appropriately. I can't try to escape. I can't attack. I can't go make friends with it. I can't look it up. For example, again, a personal example. I'm locked in my house doing this show. Not unhappy to do the show, but really unhappy. I really can't go out. And I went out today to get some baked goods, some gluten-free baked goods that I can't get delivered to me. And I'm going to be anxious for the next two days. Did I pick up? I don't think I did because I took protection. But did I pick up the virus? I want to know when testing will be available. Because when testing is available... We can all be tested, and we'll know who has it, who had it. Do we have immunity? Who has the immunity? And we can begin to rationally go back to some kind of a life where we're not all locked in our houses, going mad. That millions of people then can go back to work and be able to, to, to not only put food on the table, but maybe go to a movie again or watch a ball game or do some of the things that make life not only uh, uh, livable, but really happy and worth living. So I turn on the television, and no one can tell me what's going on to bring about this testing, when it will be tested, if it will be tested, and therefore when this will be over, especially for me as an old guy who has certain pre-existing medical conditions, And probably would not survive a severe case of COVID-19. And I become anxious. This is not mental illness. Now, there are events in people's lives that change the way they see what's coming. The death of a parent early in life. A serious attack on them. They understand at a very early age that, for example, death can happen to anyone. And they have no way or not given a story by which they can control the event of their death. I've always been, in many ways, envious of people who truly have a religious deep faith that when they die, when their relatives die, They will go to a place called heaven, or maybe not heaven, someplace else, but they will go to heaven, that their essential consciousness, their essential identity, their essential goodness will be preserved forever. Many people are anxious all the time because they want to believe that story, but they can't. It doesn't make complete enough sense to them. They're in perpetual anxiety because they know they're going to die, but they don't know for sure what happens after they die. Now, I do have a faith about it. I don't believe nothing will happen. I believe I won't be conscious, and that will be the end of me as a conscious functioning, living being. That's what I believe. And I'm comfortable enough with it not to be afraid of being dead, but of getting there. I don't want to die alone in a room on a respirator suffering some stupid bug. Anxiety, therefore, in some individuals becomes A very intense long-lasting emotion and it has to be dealt with because otherwise it becomes crippling however it is not an illness and one of the things I've seen happen in my lifetime are millions of people who have been taught that anxiety which is a normal necessary emotion for survival what do I need to know what should I eat so I don't have a heart attack or have cancer? Which changes day to day. Causes terrible anxiety. What should you put in your mouth to stay healthy? You don't know. The moment you think you know, the anxiety concerning that area goes away. But for many people, it's a kind of gnawing, nagging anxiety they need they know something but they don't know what it is they need to know well they know what they need to know they just can't find out what satisfies the question what really should i eat right? the uh, inability to satisfy anxiety is a problem or resolve anxiety because it requires certain kinds of information or faith in information that may or may not be available However, it's not an illness. And all, many of the people that I have worked with over the years become intensely anxious because they're anxious, because they think they're crazy. They think they're mentally ill. And they think they have to take a drug to stop the anxiety. And it is my experience that people who drink too much often drink to shut down Anxiety which then, when they become sober and they've made a mess of things and they're in a worse place than they were before they got drunk, day after day after day, become intensely anxious. For those of you who hear this and you are anxious, that's not an illness. You're not crazy. And to think that you are sets up a kind of a perpetual loop Of anxiety, a loop that you can't escape from. Depression requires its own discussion but everybody, I'm going to do a brief one, everybody who I've ever worked with was depressed did not have symptoms of a disease called depression but a set of emotions brought about by a set of beliefs and one of the beliefs at the core of the depression is I'm no good. I'm defective in some central way. And out of that comes, very often, a life that was lived with too much judgment and not enough understanding, too much punishment, very often, uh, uh, that was seen as unreasonable, couldn't justify in the mind of those who were punished why they were punished. That the world is a cruel place. Now, I believe the world can be a very cruel place and a dangerous place, but I also believe that it's beautiful at times and that there are people who are kind. But I think that's because while I had people in my life that I was afraid of and I wanted to stay away from, in most cases I could because they were not the people I lived with. I was very lucky that way but also because I was able to walk around freely in a world in which I saw, while there were people I wouldn't want anywhere near me, the great majority of people were either indifferent or were really quite wonderful to be around. One could be friends with them. One could depend upon them. I think that's partly the luck of the draw. But... It has to be the world as it's experienced. It has to become a fact that leads us to the fact that people very often are very good. Otherwise, the identity of the individual is, I'm no good. And at the same time, the world is no good. Related in the depression is the belief that I am helpless to do anything to change the course of my life or make myself better in any way. Hopelessness and helplessness. Put together the emotion of self-hatred, anxiety, fear, hopelessness and helplessness, and you have depression. And the more that becomes a fixed set of beliefs. And the more that the emotions are those painful emotions, the more you have a depression in which a person feels they cannot live in the world, they may even want to kill themselves, and sometimes they do, or they will take drugs, or they will do some desperate things to ameliorate those terrible, painful emotions in depression. Not an illness. But if somebody will demonstrate that there is a set of chemicals in the brain above whose normal level one can predict the manifestations, the behavioral manifestations of what's called depression, I'll say it's a medical problem, should be treated medically and hopefully with a drug that does more than just disable the brain but actually corrects the chemical imbalance that causes it. That doesn't exist now. So in fact, as far as I'm concerned, the drugs that are given are not medicines, they're just drugs. And in many cases, they're not a lot better, and maybe even in certain cases, not as safe as drugs that people might use off the street. That's possible, isn't it? There are a couple of other emotions and and then some issues I want to talk about. One is, um, when children are told they're ugly or they're stupid or they're not good enough, very often it fills them with a sense of shame, and they're humiliated. Now, I'm going to sound sexist here, uh, but I'll try not to be. Humiliation, very often in the way our culture structures life for women, is based upon appearance. Don't look at me, I'm ugly. For men, it's a humiliation based upon I'm not sexually adequate enough, I'm not uh, 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 admirable as a physical being, I'm not manly. Now, it is true that many men can feel shame and humiliation and have been humiliated about their looks, and many women will feel humiliated about being intelligent enough or, or adequate enough in many areas of life. But from my sexist old man's point of view, very often the core of humiliation in the women I've worked with is that they weren't good enough, they weren't worthy to attract the man, and the men weren't manly enough. And many of the miseries that people bring into the office are based upon an idea that, or created by the way in which the person handles that humiliation. In my book, I talk about the structuring of relationships and particularly the authoritarian relationship, which which one of the best ways to control people is by convincing them that they are not as good as you, that they're inferior. And often, when children are the recipient of this information, that they are inferior, they're damaged, they're ugly, they're stupid, they shouldn't have been born, they descend against it by becoming like the person who put them down and humiliated them and judged them in the first place they become as best they can in the hierarchy struggling to put others down bullying for example and these are just examples in order that they can restore themselves to a position that is is, is where they think they'll be worthy enough the problem is that never really cures the problem it makes it worse Because the more a bully bullies, the more inferior they know they are, at least in some level. The more a man calls other people ugly and stupid, the more at some level he is defending or she is defending her own sense of damaged identity, which doesn't change the identity. And I'm afraid that's not going to be A long enough topic for today, because I'm running out of air (laughs) to do much more of the show, but I still have almost a half an hour, so I'll pursue for a bit longer. These can be called the dynamics that people bring in to a good therapy room. One more complexity to the story and that is the structure with which a person evaluates the world one of my favorite theories to learn about and teach was Jean Piaget uh, I think it was Belgian uh, wrote in French maybe he was French, you know I'll have to check this but anyway, Piaget who looked at the way we evaluate the world in developmental terms and what Piaget recognized, and becomes for me a very helpful set of ideas, is that young children, until they develop another way of evaluating the world, tend to be highly egocentric and highly anthropomorphic and highly filled with magical omnipotence, and let me spend a moment talking about those things. Egocentrism is the child's inability to see the world through anybody else's eyes. So a two-year-old can stand in front of somebody, cover his own eyes, and say, you can't see me. In other words, if I can't see you, you can't see me. It makes it very, very difficult for children and those individuals who grow up to remain egocentric, to see the world through anybody's eyes with enormous kinds of consequences. If they see themselves as inadequate, then the assumption is everyone sees them as inadequate. If I can't love myself, then no one else can love me. becomes very much a part of the way in which a story is shaped and then maintained. And one of the concepts I'm adding if I ever redo my book or I write an article about this is the idea that for many people that I've seen in therapy and I work with, they're not ill, but they are frozen in time. They are still thinking in certain central ways egocentrically or magic omnipotence. That is the belief that there really is no difference between a wish and an event, an actual event. If I wish it, it can cause events to happen. So much of the religious training that I believe many people get is filled with magical omnipotence. A harsh God that could read your thoughts and the belief that if I wish somebody dead or I wish ill and something does happen to them, I am the cause of it. That gets built into the story of an individual. It can dominate their entire life unless it is unpackaged, untied, and worked through. And one of the reasons I push all the people I've ever worked with and my own children, to get a good education. It is through reading, it is through the study of science, it is through an ex- all sets of experiences that, like that, that we develop a movement into what Piaget calls operational thinking, and I'm not even going to try to define that, but where there's a reduction in egocentrism and magical omnipotence. Right. And the belief that somebody who told you when you were three, a parent or whatever, that you ruined their marriage or when somebody in the family died, it's because you made it happen with your badness can be avoided or worked through. And to me, that was really the heart of what therapy came: changing stories. So that individuals did not live with a feeling that their badness ruins the world. That they're responsible for things in childhood that they could never have been responsible for. That who they are morally is different from what they do morally. To me this becomes a central issue. I can change things I feel I've done badly. Or bad about. Or hurt other people. I can say I'm sorry. I can try to make restitution. I can accept punishment to resolve. That guilt. But not if I think I'm the source of the badness. Or you're the source of the badness. Then you're trapped. Then you're trapped. And then to have that sense of badness. Of wrongness. That is at the core of identity. With all these false facts that your existence in the world is what makes the entire world a poor place to live in and therefore it's hopeless and you are helpless and there is no one to help. It, it reinforces it because that moral judgment, hiding as a medical statement, is a moral judgment. Now there's a lot here to process because I've given an entire course in psychology in 20 minutes. But all of these things become very important issues for a person to understand who is labeled mentally ill and is frozen in time. Uh, One quick other aspect to this. Children who undergo terrible experiences, for example, also become frozen in time because they seal away the experience, and they can't look at it years later. It's experienced the same way as the moment that happened. And I guess the best way to to, to, to explain this is with an example, because examples are always good this way. I was once delivering a lecture, a discussion lecture, in my class, and the topic of the day came out of the textbook, I'm not sure I would have raised it otherwise, was Sexual abuse of children and one of the young women in the class sitting in front of me one row back in, in the class literally fell apart she started to shake she started to cry and I stopped and I asked her what's the matter and she shook and she shook and she shook and finally said I was sexually abused and I was trying to tell her I would see her after class at which point four or five other young women in the class said, so was I. I don't know factually how many girls and children and even boys have been sexually abused in childhood. But as they supported her, she began to describe the events. She had an older brother who regularly snuck into her bed pinned her to the bed and abused her in a variety of ways and the worst part of it which was confirmed by the other young women in the class is that when they told their parent about these events they weren't believed they were betrayed so they sealed off the event believed they had brought it on themselves in women are told this all the time. The lawyer of the defendant asks, what were you wearing the night that my, 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 my defendee, that the person in the, is, has been accused of your rape, what were you wearing that you brought this on yourself? When I deal with this anxiety, and I'm not going to go into this at great length, length, I did what I did with her. I said, I want you to look at me. I want you to look around in the room. And I want you to just breathe. I want you to put a hand on the top of your stomach, just below your breastbone. And gently push out and let it come in. Push it in the air and push out the air. I want you to just breathe. And look where it's happening now. This occurred when you were a helpless child. You're now... A very healthy very adequate young woman this couldn't happen to you now you wouldn't let it happen to you now the times are even different because they were changing by the time this particular event where women were not yet in the Me Too movement but things were changing she calmed down she became like another individual And she said, I won't talk to you about it after class. I have a therapist, and I now have something I really have to discuss with her. Good. It never came up again in class. I didn't raise it with her. She didn't raise it with me. She finished the course. If I remember correctly, she was a very good student, got an A. But she was frozen in time with feelings of humiliation. Humiliation of helplessness, of anger, of guilt, of shame, frozen. Those emotions and the feeling of what had happened were as vivid when she was 20 as when this occurred when she was 8 and 9 and 10 years old. Okay, I think we've done enough for today. I love this show. I think I did well. I would go now, have a glass of wine, but I can't drink again tonight. I'm subsetting my stomach. I have certain stomach issues. They're not serious, but they make me miserable. And if I drink, I'm going to be miserable when I wake up in the morning. So I won't open that nice bottle of Sauvignon Blanc that's sitting in the refrigerator, and I can hear it calling to me. Maybe I'll do a show again tomorrow if I could think of something I really would like to talk about, that I think it has value. Okay, no one is mentally ill. But the things that people do to protect themselves from terrible events, the things that people do because they believe they are somehow morally inherently faulty, the things that people do to fit into an authoritarian system in which that hurt them, in which they now hurt others. All of these things are in illnesses, but they really are serious problems in living. They lead to all kinds of unhappy consequences. And until the story changes and the story is reworked so that there's logic and there are facts and the use of morals in a different way than they're being used in the story that makes them miserable, us miserable, you miserable, or me miserable. Until that changes, nothing really changes. And that, to me, is the real function of what mental health systems should deal with, not the creation of cockamamie moral judgments that pose... as as medical illnesses that make everything far worse rather than better. As Edward R. Murrow used to say, good night, stay well. That's exactly what he said. I forgot what he said. But anyway, he was a great reporter. I'm going to end my broadcast.